And then, now that is the first 11 chapters. We're not going all the way through. I wanted to handle, we'll deal with that in a minute. But Brendan, you got your Finding the Rock ready? And so God bless you guys as you go to the Finding the Rock class. And there they go. Follow Brendan on out. And the rest of you, um, let me just inform you, we are going to uh, finish up Genesis week after next, and then we're going to take a drive down the Romans Road. We're going to take a drive down the Romans Road. Say, now, people have asked me, why do you, you know, do these series? I said, here's why, because the, the sheep of God, God's children are, are anemic from not understanding the full warp and woof of Scripture, the overarching themes, good, sound doctrine. We, we're, we're anemic. We don't, we don't know our Bible. And so I believe that we're called, among other things, to teach the Bible to the children of God. And Romans is, of course, it's all the Word of God, but Romans is called the pinnacle of Paul's writings uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is so rich. So we're going to go through all 16 chapters and we're going to do that. We're going to drive down the Romans road and, uh, it'll, it'll take us probably 16 weeks. You're going to walk out of here with a book. We're going to teach you the word of God. And, uh, if you can get Romans, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm in Genesis still, but that's where we're going. And we'll be starting on May. I believe it's May 12th. Is that a Sunday? I mean, a Wednesday, May 12th. Anybody got a calendar or a watch or it's May 12th. Is it Wednesday? Okay, it's May 12th. We'll be starting Romans. We'll put together um, the, the handouts, a um, binder, uh, spread the word. It's going to so bless you and ground you in the word of God like nothing else. But tonight I'm excited. We're going to look at uh, starting all over again after the great flood in the book of Genesis. And let's just uh, pray and I'll let you be seated. Father, we just thank you right now that the word of God is where we get our faith. It builds our faith. And Lord, it strengthens our faith, and it gives us wisdom that the wisest in this world don't have. I pray that, Lord, you will open our eyes tonight and help us to understand what happened way back in the beginning so that we can get a sense of where we are now and what you're doing with the world now. We thank you for it. Can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to my heart? I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. You better perk up and listen. You're going to need it. All right. Um, let's look here. Last time we witnessed the great flood sent by God to wipe out every living thing on earth, save Noah, his family, and two of every living thing for the preservation of the species. If I could go back in time, but a time machine... Let me tell you one of the places I want to go. In that ark, when it was afloat, I want to see that. I want to see the lions, tigers, and bears, the elephants, the insects, the birds, Noah's family. I want to see it. Because you know that was an incredibly anointed, divine, presence of God everywhere journey. You talk about the love boat. Talk about uh, an ocean cruise. Talk about going on a cruise. This was the cruise of all cruises. Now, uh, it, Genesis records that the deluge, the great flood, continued for 40 days and nights. 
And the ark built by Noah remained uh, afloat for five full months. There they were. All you could see was water. As far as the eye could see, there was no sight of land. Do you know what kind of faith that would take? What kind of courage? What kind of fearlessness? That not only did God preserve you through the ark, but that he's taking care of you while you no longer can see any land, nothing, no trees, nothing. Are you ready? No birds, nothing, no seagulls, nothing, just water. There it was for five full months. Now, during this time, Noah possessed his soul in patience, waiting until God remembered. He'll always remember you. God remembers you right now. The Bible says that God remembered Noah. Look what it says. But God remembered Noah. Say with me, God remembers me. That means God was looking at Noah and remembered what he had promised and didn't forget him. And I'm telling you, whatever you need tonight, wherever you are in life, God remembers you. And God's got his eye on you. And God's going to take care of you. He didn't let Noah drown. He didn't let them remain adrift forever. He sent a wind to, to take the, the waters down. He took care of them. God will take care of you. Guaranteed. Same God here is our God. Okay? And it says he, uh, God remembered Noah and all those wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and those waters began to recede. And it took just 40 days for those waters to cover the earth. But before Noah and his family and all the creatures aboard could finally emerge, a whole year would pass. That means you got close fellowship going on in that ark. That means the family needs to get along. Because you're, you're in a boat for a year, and there's nowhere to go but the boat. Okay? Say with me, God's never in a hurry. Have you ever noticed you always are and He never is? And that's why it's hard to get along with God for some folks. You, we're always in a hurry. God never is. Uh, it was His will that all traces of his wrath and judgment were erased before they were permitted to disembark. Um, we could be more specific here, but God didn't want there to be corpses. He didn't want there to be a bunch of um, death and destruction. He waited till it was all gone. Then he let them disembark. Now, it says in the Bible, in verse 2, the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the 17th month, or the seventh month, now look at how precisely God, God recorded this event. He says, on, and this is Moses writing. Remember what we went over in the beginning of Genesis. And who was Moses writing to? Who was Moses' target audience when he wrote it? Of course, God knew it was going to be for all of us, but who was he writing to? Israel, before they did what? Crossed the Jordan and went to take the promised land. His target audience was the, the people of God, the second generation that were about to cross the Jordan and face the giants and take the cities. And so he's encouraging them with the things that he said. Now, on the 17th day, says Moses, of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Wow. 
Now notice this. This is something I did not know until I researched this. The exact date is given when the ark finally touched on solid ground, the 17th month, the 17th day of the month. And it is surely no coincidence the Lord Jesus rose from the dead on the very same day of the very same month. Having passed through the waters of judgment, Christ stood in resurrection upon the earth. Our God is a God of perfect timing. He knows exactly what time it is, to the microsecond. And he saw to it that that ark came to rest on the very day of the very month that Christ would raise, rise from the dead centuries later. Thus we find our rest in him. Just as the ark rested on Ararat, we find our rest in him. Amen? Now Noah waited 40 days after the ark came to rest before seeking to find out the condition of the earth. Now once that ark came to rest, if I'm in that ark, I'm jumping out and swimming around. I want to know what's going on. But you know what I think Noah's deal was? I think the presence of God was so strong in that ark, he was taking his time. He was spending time with God. He finally opened the window and released two birds, a raven and a dove. And the raven, being a scavenger, found all kinds of things to eat. We won't go there. And never returned. But the dove returned. A week later, Noah released the dove again. And she returned with an olive leaf in its bill. No doubt this thrilled. No question about it. The family of eight. There was an olive leaf. What did that mean? trees vegetation normalcy we're returning and it excited them perhaps they passed the leaf around from hand to hand let me see that leaf give me that leaf let me look at a leaf again it's been months it was clear evidence that vegetation and life were sprouting again and that was great news noah waited another week to release the dove once more this time she never returned course there's all kinds of analogy and metaphors and illustrations about the raven representing the flesh the dove representing the spirit the raven going out to feed on flesh the dove coming back with a sign or a symbol of peace the holy spirit but this time the representation of the spirit never returned noah removed the covering from the ark and looked out wow Now, again, the exact date is given when he looked out. It was the first day of the first month of his 601st year. 601 years old. And he's popping his head out of that ark, looking around. What a life. The earth was dry as far as the eye could see. Yet Noah waited 56 more days. I believe enjoying being shut in with God. Why else would you wait 56 days? I mean, I think the presence of God, folks, was strong in that ark. Can you imagine? God supernaturally pulled all those animals in, all those birds, all the reptiles, all the insects, all of it. And you think his presence wasn't all over that ark? Finally, the momentous day arrived. The door was flung open. And the exodus out of the ark began. Wow. Then God said to Noah in verse 16, come out of the ark. First he told him, come in. Now he's saying, come out. You and your wife and your sons and their wives 
Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. Bring out those birds, those animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. Bring them out so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. What God is saying is it's time to start all over again. Now think about this, church, for a minute. Use your imagination. When they stepped out of that ark, there was not a living thing anywhere. There were no insects. There were no reptiles. There were no birds flying around. There were no other human beings. They were it. The whole world to yourself. I want you to think about this. They walked out into the equivalent of what Adam had walked out or had appeared in of nothing. Well, of course, God had created the species by then, but they weren't multiplied. And there were no other humans. And so God said, Turn them loose, let them go. And let him multiply and replenish the earth. So Noah came out together with his sons and with his wife and his sons' wives. And all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all those birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of that ark, one kind after another. Now, Pastor Jeff, do you really believe that? Well, of course I believe it. Well, of course. Why would you not believe this? I, this is way easier to believe than that some single-celled organism cry, crawled out of some primordial soup trillions of years ago and over time fully developed all on its own through trial and error. That is stupid <laughs> and totally illogical. It, it beggars logic or, or any kind of intellectual scrutiny. This? Well, of course I do. God's Lord over his whole creation. He can say to an animal, come, and to, it comes and go, and it goes. He, he is Lord over everything. So, of course, I believe it. Noah was in a five-month miracle floating on the water, saved from wrath. The ark being a picture of Jesus Christ, the ark of the new covenant. The only safety in the whole world was that ark, and if you weren't in it, you perished. And in it, God kept those creatures. Noah worked 120 years on that ark to care for them. Of course I believe it. God saved the species so they could reproduce. That's not hard for God. The first order of business for Noah was to build an altar, and he offered up one of every clean beast. Remember I was uh, telling you last time that he took on, on board seven pairs of the clean uh, birds, the clean uh, animals, uh, so that he could offer an offering. And now when he gets off of the ark, I want you to notice the first thing he thinks about doing is worshiping God. That's the first thing he does. So he offers up one of every clean beast and every clean fowl in a great burnt offering, and this was not a sin offering. He didn't need a sin offering. That would come later. The first offering was all for God. He was just worshiping God. Everything he did from this altar, this burnt offering, was all for God. It was just a worship session. 
Lord, you delivered us. You preserved us. We are still alive. The rest of the world perish. It's time to worship God. It was a praise offering, an offering of thanksgiving for his salvation from so great a catastrophe. They'd watch the whole world perish. In this context of worship, God cut a covenant with Noah. And it's called the Noahic covenant. It is the second covenant cut by God in the Bible. Now, here's the first one. Now, I want to go through these covenants real quickly because I want you all to understand the covenants. Sometime I'm going to do a brief series on the covenants in the Bible because this, this book is a book of covenants. God covenanting with people that he's going to do certain things. So let's look at this now. Um, it, is the, it is the second uh, covenant uh, cut by God in the Bible, the first being the Edenic covenant. And we went through this covenant that was cut in Eden, the Edenic covenant. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is the covenant. He said, I, he said I'm going to send one who will, the, the seed of the woman, who is going to bruise the devil's head. I'm going to take care. I'm going to destroy the devil and his works. That was the Genesis 3.15 Edenic covenant. It was the first promise in the Bible. And of course, God being God, a God of covenant, you do understand our God is a God of covenant. He promises you and I certain things. This Edenic covenant, Genesis 3.15, the first covenant in the Bible, was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, of whom John wrote. Read this with me, because this is why the Lord came to earth. The reason the Son of God appeared. Y'all aren't reading. Come on. The radio audience is listening. Now, come on. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why he came. And that was a fulfillment of the Edenic covenant. Now, for the record, the Bible reveals six great covenants, four of which God made with the nation of Israel. Five of the covenants are unconditional in nature. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means that regardless of man's obedience or disobedience, God's still going to do it. We call that an unconditional covenant. Five of the six covenants that I'm going to point out were unconditional. Whether or not we perform or respond correctly to God, he's still going to do it. I'll give you one. Jesus is coming back no matter what people do. God's going to judge the world no matter what people do. Um, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, no matter what people do. Okay? So, one of the covenants of the six is conditional in nature. And that is, this covenant will bring either blessing or cursing, depending on man's obedience or disobedience. And that is, uh, okay, the Edenic covenant is found in Genesis 3.15. The Abrahamic covenant, well, I missed one there. It's not down there. So let me just tell you what that is. Well, we'll get to it. It's the Mosaic covenant. When he said... I set before you blessing and cursing. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. I set before you life and death. If you obey, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. That's the conditional covenant. The other five are unconditional. But the Mosaic covenant is conditional. If you obey me, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. So that is upon you and me in our response. Now, first the Edenic covenant found in Genesis 3.15 then the Abrahamic covenant. This one is so important. You know why? Because you and I are being affected by the Abrahamic covenant today and the whole mess 
that's going on in Israel. God came to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And in this covenant, God promised many things to Abraham. He promised uh, that he would make Abraham's name great. Did he do it? Is Abraham's name great? Yes. He promised that Abraham would have numerous physical descendants. What about that? Absolutely, the Jewish people, the Semitic peoples. And that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. Is that true? Yes. And God also made promises regarding a nation called what? Israel. Oh, here we go, because Israel's still with us. What did God say? In fact, he gave geographical boundaries of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise he made of land, and they are laid out on more than one occasion in the book of Genesis. I gave you the verses there and in your notes if you want to look them up. But God clearly gave the borders of the land he was promising unconditionally to Abraham. Now, are they occupying all that land today? No. Matter of fact, they're giving more and more of it away. But are they one day going to occupy every square inch that God gave them? Yes. Why? Because it's an unconditional covenant. Now, another provision in the Abrahamic covenant is that the families of the world will be blessed through the physical line of Abraham. Has that happened? Have all the families of the earth? Can you find a place on earth where somebody hasn't been blessed by the blessing God gave to Abraham? No. You can't. And how did God bless all the families of the earth? What's his name? Jesus. Because he's the one that came through the physical line of Abraham. Now, this is a reference to the Messiah who would come from the line of Abraham, and he did. Now, here's another covenant, the Palestinian covenant. Very important here. The Palestinian covenant found in Deuteronomy thir chapter 30, 1 through 10. The Palestinian covenant amplifies, expand, uh, expounds upon, and reiterates the land aspect that was detailed in the Abrahamic covenant. God said again, this is the land I have given you. I was going to put a map up here. didn't have time to get it. Uh, sometime I'll put it up there and show you all the land that God promised Abraham. But now watch. <clears throat> In this covenant, God, because of the people's disobedience, would cause them to be scattered around the world. Did that happen? They were scattered around the whole world. From the time of shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection in 70 A.D., the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the world, as God said, and they only regathered again 20 centuries later, in what year? 1948, they became a nation again in a day. Now, God had said, he, I will eventually restore the nation together. The reason I'm going to restore you is because my promise was unconditional. My people are going to occupy the land. Now, when the nation is restored, they will obey him perfectly. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. And God will cause them to prosper. Now, I want to give you a little side note here about this land issue because right now, you and I, you and I are being affected by the Abrahamic covenant in this respect. Jerusalem and Israel have become the sore spot of the world. That is a fulfillment of prophecy where God said, the land of Israel, Jerusalem, is going to become 
the sore thumb of the world. All the nations of the world are going to be focused on the seemingly unfixable problem experienced by Jerusalem, by the Israeli and the Arab peoples. And nobody will be able to fix it. But I want you to notice something. I, as a little side note, both the Abrahamic and the Palestinian covenants are crystal clear in their pronouncement of the boundaries of the land God was giving to Abraham and his descendants. There's no getting around it. God gave that land to the Jewish people, not the Arab people, the Jewish people. Does that make me racist to say that? Not at all. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Okay? Now, this is one of the main themes of the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant, one of the main themes. It stretches through the Testaments. Now watch this. God gave to the Jewish people the promised land, and the Scripture explicitly warns that any nation that tries to divide the land or remove the Jewish people from their land will suffer grave consequences. Did y'all catch that? Now listen carefully to me. Because our nation right now is in trouble. We're in trouble. Now look at this carefully. Let's read the verse. Zechariah 12.3 And in that day, he's talking about the last days. I will make Jerusalem, what everybody, a burdensome stone for all peoples and all who lift it or burden themselves with it. Let me make that simple. Any nation that messes with their stuff. Shall be what? Say it with me. Sorely wounded. You know what the King James says? Cut in pieces. The New King James says cut in pieces. Any nation that messes with their stuff, that tries to intrude and remove them from their inheritance in God is going to be sorely wounded. And all the nations of the earth shall come and gather together against Jerusalem. That's the prophecy. This is why the current Obama administration is playing with fire. As they burden themselves with the Jewish people by telling them they can no longer build settlements on the very land God gave to them. Can I ask a million dollar question tonight? What business is it of America's to tell Israel what they can do with their own land? It's not our business. But see, the Bible warns if you go messing with their stuff, then God steps in. And there has never been a moment in our history when we messed with Israel's stuff that we did not experience consequences in this country. This current administration is taking it a level I've never seen. Telling them you can't build, you can't this, you can't that. Listen, this is higher than international geopolitics. This is you're messing with you're messing with God's covenant with his people. It's not political at all. This is not a political issue. This is a divine issue. In other words, when God's involved, get out the way. Get out of the way. I've learned, if I find that I'm standing in the way of God, if I'm, if I'm hindering God in any way, I get out of the way. Because you don't want to mess with 
God and the apple of God's eye. And the apple of God's eye is Israel. And the pupil of his eye is Jerusalem. We must pray that God turns the American government away from this folly before we become sorely wounded as a nation. And I'm telling you that. You you may remember I, I taught this this night. The day may come when obviously America has come under heavy chastening because we won't leave them alone. I bless Jerusalem. I pray for Prime Minister Netanyahu. I pray for the, the Jewish people. Are they perfect? No. Do they curse God? Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, just as much as anybody else. Are they perfect? Not in any way. But they're the apple of God's eye. And God's got an unconditional covenant with them. And you better not stand in the way of that unconditional covenant. In a, in a battle between you and God, let me promise you who's going to win. <laughs> All right. Now, here's the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. It either brought God's direct blessing for obedience or God's direct cursing for disobedience upon the nation of Israel. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant was summarized in the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, but also the rest of the law, which contained over 600 commands, roughly 300 positive, 300 negative. The bottom line with the Mosaic Covenant is that it's conditional in this way. You obey it, and, and God blesses you. And if you don't, God uh, actually, you get in trouble with God. That's the only conditional one. Now, the history books of the Old Testament detail how Israel succeeded at uh, obeying the law or how Israel failed miserably at obeying the law, all in light of and through the lens of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, Deuteronomy eleven twenty six to 28 deals specifically the blessing-cursing theme, if you want to read it. Now we come to the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant amplifies the seed aspect Detail on the Abrahamic covenant. Now watch this. The promises to David in the passages I just gave you are very significant. God promised that David's physical line of descent would last forever and that his kingdom would never pass away permanently. Well, he can't be talking about a man there, can he? David died. So he's talking about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And David was in that lineage. Okay, that's the Davidic covenant. Now, this kingdom, furthermore, would have a ruling individual exercising authority over it. And this future king is Jesus. That's why Jesus was sometimes called the son of who? David. Now, here's the new covenant. The new covenant is a covenant made with the nation of Israel, which speaks about the blessings which are detailed in the Abrahamic covenant. In the new covenant found in Jeremiah, God promises to forgive sin and there will be a universal knowledge of the Lord. And what I didn't put in here and should have, in the new covenant found in Jeremiah, God promises to give the people a new heart and a new spirit. And he's talking about the born-again experience. Now, it even appears that the nation of Israel will have a special relationship with their God. Now we come to where we are tonight, the Noahic, which is the hardest one to say. Noah, everybody say Noahic. Or Noahic. Promises the continuation of the cycles of life, for one thing. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, now, aroma of what? The burnt offering that Noah was offering up. And what did God say in his heart? Never again. Everybody say with me, never again. That takes care of every fear of global warming. Never again will I curse the ground because of man 
In other words, God's in charge of his world. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, I'm never again going to do what I just did. It's not ever going to happen. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Never again. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. What is this talking about? The cycles of life, the seasons, and the changing of days. Day and night, none of these things will ever cease. So if you ever wonder, uh, is the sowing principle still real? God said, it's always going to be here. It will never cease. Seed time and harvest. So there's a promise. You're going to have continuity and predictability and normalcy throughout the rest of history, God said. It also guarantees the earth would never again be destroyed by a flood. Hallelujah. God says in chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And don't forget that God said, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. And every time you see that rainbow, what are you to remember? I have cut a covenant. So when you see that rainbow, remember, apparently they weren't there before the flood. Because Noah looked up and said, oh, colors in the sky. God said, you see that bow? That's my sign to you. Every time you see it, remember, I cut a covenant with you, and I'm good for my word. Now, another thing that happened in the Noahic covenant was a revolutionary change in diet. God tells Noah, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. He'd just been in the ark for five months with animals that had never been eaten. Deer, antelope. And now God says, you don't have to be a vegetarian anymore. Isn't that what he said? Just as I gave you the green plants, in other words, you've been a plant eater until now. Now you get to eat meat. So don't come up to me and tell me I can't eat bacon. <laughs> I thought that would get you. But Pastor Jeff, that's pork. Let me just, everything that lives and moves now there's not everything that lives and moves i want to eat but don't tell me i can't have my bacon don't tell me it's not kosher and all that stuff i'm not bound up in all that you turn me loose in cracker barrel or ihop and i'm gonna eat some oink oink yes sir all right now watch this before the great flood Man was strictly vegetarian, but now everything that lives and moves could be food. Interestingly, Paul prophesies in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, that one of the marks of latter-day apostasy will be that some shall depart from the faith, Paul writes, giving heed to seducing spirits and teachings from demon spirits, forbidding people to marry, and commanding to abstain from meat. which God created to be what? Received with thanksgiving. Don't get me on the first part, forbidding to marry. Because if you want to know the root cause, in my opinion, 
of the constant problem with pedophilia amongst the Catholic church and ministry, priesthood, is because of the wrong-headed doctrine of celibacy, where they have been commanded they can never marry, and the Bible is clear, unless God gives you that gift, it ain't yours to have. And so I believe it has a tremendously negative effect on a person uh, when that is not their gifting. And if they remove that doctrine of celibacy, a lot of the pedophilia would stop. Now that's free of charge. And if you're out of the Catholic Church, I'm not condemning it. I thank God for their continued stance on abortion. But on celibacy, they are dead wrong. Okay? Now, since the cause of the great flood had been unabated and radical evil doing. Uh, God also instituted law and order in the Noah covenant. Real quickly, for your lifeblood, he said, I'll surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal and from each man as well. I demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now what God was doing after the terrible sin and radical apostasy of this pre-flood generation, he's instituting law and order and government. For the image of God has God made man. God is saying, a man takes a man's life, that man's life will be taken. So much for this bleeding heart liberalism that causes criminals to sit in, in on death row for 30 and 40 years through all the appeals. What did God say? The command is clearly given that the murderer should be executed. That's what it says in the Bible. I'm a teacher of the Bible. This is what it says. Nor has that law ever been rescinded. Read Romans 13, 3 to 4. It gives the state the right under God to execute a murderer. For civil authorities, it says in Romans, are not a terror to people who do good, but to those who do bad. That's when the police... Remember when you were walking in sin? Some of you were in drugs and whatever, and any time a cop car came up behind you, you had a coronary? Why was that? Because you were doing wrong. You were living... But now, have you ever noticed, they come up behind you and you... Hey! Because when you're living righteously, you got nothing to fear. Would you have no dread of him who is in authority? Then do what is right, says the Bible, and you will receive his approval and commendation. For he is God's servant for your good. That's talking about the police. But if you do wrong, you should dread him and be afraid, for he does not bear and wear the sword or the badge for nothing. He is God, I should say he doesn't bear the Glock in vain. He is God's servant to execute his wrath, punishment, vengeance on the wrongdoer. He's God's servant. You take the cops out of this city for one week, and we're in chaos. And every man is huddled in his home. Uh, all right, now, so eight people were saved from the great flood. Eight people disembarked from the ark under the umbrella of a new covenant. Noah, the father, and his three sons. Now, listen carefully, everybody. We're headed towards the end, but I want you to get this, because this is going to lead right into next week. Noah, the father... The three sons were the new heads of the human race. They were all there was. Noah, as it were, became a second Adam to mankind. The names of Noah's three sons were, starting from the oldest, Japheth, meaning chief of the race. Next came Ham, meaning black. And finally the youngest, Shem, meaning glory or renown. 
Now what happened? When they disembarked, Noah became a farmer, depicted by the word husbandman, which means man of the ground. He was a cultivator of the, uh-oh, vineyard, where funny things ferment. And this got him into trouble, for the Bible reveals that he became drunk. Aren't you glad God tells the truth about the people in the Bible? Yep, one night Noah took the fruit of the vine, it fermented, and he had a one-man party. And in his drunkenness, he exposes nakedness in a shameful way. The Bible says he was in a cave. Yet guess what? In his sin, listen carefully to me now, his failure quickly revealed the character of everyone around him. There he is. He's in the cave. He got so drunk, he passed out. He blacked out. Naked. Well, the first one to find him was Ham. Ham went walking in. There lay Noah drunk and naked. His character, that is the character of Ham, instantly revealed. He was amused by the spectacle of his naked father. And instead of trying to cover him, he, his impulse was to go and broadcast it to his two brothers rather than cover him up. Okay? powerful said i'm gonna go tell on dad look at that old fool and he dishonored him how many of you know that whatever you do and whatever you say god sees it i mean this is really something because look what happened now his behavior brought down upon his head his father's silent disapproval and a curse from god shem and japheth on the other hand walked in backward you know they they knew he was in there they heard ham's negative report they grabbed a, a blanket and they walked him backward and never even looked at him just sort of tossed it over him remembering this this is the great man who heard God and built an ark for a hundred and twenty years who was declared righteous by God and he's messed up and we're not going to have a party over it or dishonor him. We remember who he was, not what we see. And we judge him by who he is in God, not who he is in his flesh. Now that's really important. Um, so they walked in backward. And they covered their father's shame. Now this event reveals a Bible principle unknown to many Christians. It's amazing to me. But look what it says in Proverbs 17, 9. He who covers over an offense promotes love. He who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter or goes out and broadcasts it separates friends. There is a sort of a knowledge gap in the body of Christ about honor. The whole principle of honor. That Paul said, I don't know anybody after the flesh anymore. I know all people after the spirit and not after the flesh. The, the principle is that these two brothers and then Ham had two different attitudes, two different levels of wisdom. Ham had no wisdom. 
All he wanted to do was trash his dad. The two brothers said, no, no, no. That's the man of honor and the man of faith. Has he messed up? Yes. But it's not ours to go broadcast that or to repeat it. Why down the road would you go repeat something negative that happened? Why? There's no reason to do it. Look what happened. I'm not saying you should ignore sin or help a sinner hide his transgression. He needs to repent. But this is speaking to the issue of how the transgression of another should be handled. Ham took great delight in broadcasting his father's failure and shining the light of exposure on what he had done, mocking him, ridiculing him, making fun of him, dishonoring him. But this, unfortunately, is the typical reaction of believers to the fall of a brother or sister. How many of you know there's a ham spirit in the church? Can I meddle a little bit? Is there a ham spirit in the church that broadcasts people's failures and takes delight in gossip and slander and the grapevine and all that good stuff? Sure. But is there also a spirit of Japheth and Shem in the church? And that rests among the wise people. Which one do you want? Now, the other two brothers wanted only to cover the shame of Noah and seek his restoration once he awoke. When Noah awoke, oh my, he found out what had been done. And one of the most remarkable prophecies in the whole Bible came forth from his lips in Genesis 9, 25 to 27. We're about to close with this. I want you to see this because we're about to go on into the building of the Tower of Confusion next week. He said, what did he say when he found out what had happened? Cursed be who? Well, that's not Ham. No, but it's Ham's descendants. The lowest of slaves will he be to who? The descendants of Shem and Japheth. Look, look what God hears and sees. And when you dishonor, when you've got that spirit of Ham on you, it doesn't go well with you, Ham. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan, there goes Ham's descendants again, be everybody's slave. Wow. The Canaanites, the descendants of Ham, were cursed. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Noah saw, apparently, all the coarseness and shamelessness of Ham being transmitted into the vileness and filthiness of Canaanite tribes of a future day. These same tribes were later subdued by the descendants of Shem, just like Noah said. Here's the old drunk for a night, gets up, and let's go with a major prophecy. Shem, the father of the Semites, or Jewish peoples, was blessed all through Bible history. It would be the Jews through whom God would channel both his revelations and his redemption. That whole Bible of yours is written by Jews, except Luke. It was from Shem's line that Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, would come. Japheth would be the empire builder. Japheth was the father of the Greeks. This, is, this blesses me. He was a, Japheth was the father of the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, and the Indo-Teutonic, which is the Germanic races, the Germans. These are the peoples who, for millennia, have held the destiny of men in their hands. Let's stand together, can we? Now, I know we're, we're going to get into some real Bible study here, but folks, I want you to see the Bible 
is, is just an ongoing theme and story. And here, now we're ready to next week look at these three men and their families repopulating the earth and moving east, and they start to go ahead and build the Tower of Babel. And I'm going to show you why God judged it, why His wrath fell on it, and it's a real picture and, and message for us today. But how many of you are thankful you can be a Shem or you can be a Ham? Amen? Isn't that a powerful story? And uh, amen? So let's pray together, can we? Father, we just thank you right now. The Bible is so amazing. It's such an incredible divine book. And we thank you for what we've seen tonight, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible story of Noah, this historic account of the great flood. And now, Lord, we're about to see the repopulation of the earth, and we're going to have understanding of the history of our world. And Lord, we just pray that you'll help us as we look at this final story of Ham and Shem and Japheth. Lord, to not be like Ham to not delight in the failures of others, but, Lord, to have that spirit of Shem and Japheth that honored their father even when he was fallen. And, Lord, they were blessed and their descendants were blessed to this day. Thank you for that powerful lesson. In the mighty name of Jesus. Let's sing once before we go. Singing, Joe. So, so 